Thank God for his blessing and his goodness. And I am going to say emphatically, I'm thankful for his word. It is the word of God that brings strength to us. Amen. Brings anointing to us and brings a foundation to us. No matter what times you may face, no matter what you may go through, you need the word of God in your life to be a strength to you. And so tonight is very, very important. Every service is important. And tonight is Tuesday on the rock, the rock being the word of God. Wise man built his house on a foundation of rock. Foolish man built his house on a sandy foundation and there was destruction that came. Amen. Praise God. So let's build our life on the word of God. I'm turning to James chapter 1 verse 23. I'll be reading two verses, verse 23 and 24. Verse 23, for if any be a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like unto man, beholding his natural face in a glass, for he beholdeth himself and goeth his way, and straightway forgetteth what manner of man he was would be a tragic event to stare into the mirror of the Word of God and not change our ways. This verse brings up that tragedy. I want to speak tonight on a subject that I think is one of the greatest illustrations of pointing out what a new birth experience is and what the gospel is. And this title is an attempt to illustrate that. Some have asked some questions of late because they have been guests on our live stream. And so I'm going to uh, reiterate our doctrine, our teaching, and also introduce to some an illustration that maybe helps understand what the new birth experience is all about. For that reason, I title this tonight, The Elephant Not in the room. I want you to turn to your neighbor and I want you to tell your neighbor the elephant not in the room. Lord, we thank you and praise you tonight. We ask that you would bring anointing and strength to us, clarity in your word, the ability to see what a great and rich gospel and good news that you have provided to humanity, all humanity. We ask that you would help us tonight. We give to you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. God bless you as we move from the reading of this passage into this lesson. There are two passages I would like to bring to your attention that contain in those passages inconvenient truths. Inconvenient truths. 1 Samuel chapter 15 and verse 13 and 14 gives to us the first one. Samuel came to Saul, and Saul said unto him, Blessed be thou of the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What meaneth then this bleeding of the sheep in mine ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? That, ladies and gentlemen, was an inconvenient truth because Saul was to utterly destroy the Amalekites. He did not do that. He saved the best. 
He brought sheep, he brought oxen, and when he meets the man of God, there is an inconvenient truth that is in the way. Samuel acknowledges that. What meaneth these bleeding of the sheep in mine ears and the lowing of the oxen which I hear? The inconvenient truth was the evidence that Saul had not, in fact, listened to the instructions of the prophet of God. And this was not pleasing to God. It was an inconvenient truth. That's an Old Testament example. A New Testament example is found in John chapter 4 and verse 13. Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water, springing up into everlasting life. The woman saith unto him, Sir, give me this water that I thirst not, neither come hither to draw. Jesus saith unto her, Go call thy husband and come hither. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said unto her, this is the inconvenient truth, Thou hast well said, I have no husband, for thou hast had five husbands, and he whom thou now hast is not thy husband, in that saidst thou truly. The woman said unto him, Sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. The inconvenient truth that she did not want to expose was that she had been married five times and the one that she was with was not her husband. So an Old Testament inconvenient truth and a New Testament inconvenient truth. The conversation would have continued unabated. The conversation would have avoided what was obvious, what was a fact, and, and that was the inconvenient truth until there was a revelation about that which was obvious. Ladies and gentlemen, I propose to you in both of these examples that there was an elephant in the room. There was an inconvenient truth. There was something that people were trying to skirt around. They were trying to skirt about. They didn't want to bring these revelations to light. And therefore, there was a huge present that was not being addressed. This is an idiom. The elephant not in the room is an idiom. For those of you that need a definition of what an idiom is, it is a, a phrase whose meaning is not clear from the individual words. And so when you put the phrase together, it doesn't necessarily follow the definitions of each individual word. We have an elephant in the room. The elephant in the room stands for an obvious truth that is being ignored or goes unaddressed. It's based on the idea that an elephant in the room would be impossible, impossible to overlook. Those people that are in the room are pretending that the elephant is not there and they're concerning themselves about relatively small and even irrelevant matters, insignificant matters, when compared to the looming large problem that is right in front of them that is not being addressed. There's an elephant in the room. The Oxford Dictionary gives the first known use of the phrase the 
elephant in the room in the New York Times in, on June 20th, 1959, in which a statement was made, financing schools has become a problem about equal to having an elephant in the room. It's so big, you just can't ignore it. And so this idiom refers to a question, a problem, a solution, a controversial issue that is obvious, glaringly obvious, but is ignored by a group of people, generally out of embarrassment, or it's a subject that is taboo. Nobody wants to address it. It might be a value judgment that should be discussed openly, and yet there is no acknowledgement. There is a hope somehow that it will just go away by itself. And it will not do so because it is such a large and looming present. This idiom is commonly used in addiction recovery terminology to describe the reluctance of friends and family of an addicted person in order to discuss that person's problem. They, they, they don't want to discuss this. They want to ignore it. They don't want the confrontation. And this ends up aiding a person's denial. It's the elephant in the room that everybody knows about. Nobody wants to discuss. We would rather sweep things under the carpet because it's uncomfortable. It's, it's confrontational and people by their nature are not confrontational beings. Some are. There's a certain percentage that are. But for, for the most part, people don't want to bring up things that, that make them uneasy or uncomfortable. I propose to you tonight that the church must never allow the elephant to be in the room in terms of people that enter into our doors, in terms of the gospel message that we preach. What is a church if it ignores that which destroys? I want to say emphatically to you tonight, and I'm angry at the devil. I'm angry at sin. I'm angry at the consequences of sin. I'm angry at the damage that sin does. I don't want it to be an elephant in the room, but I want to confront it. I want there to be a clear and resounding symbol and signal that the church is a place that people can come to and lay down every burden if they're willing to acknowledge the things that stand in their way. Only God is able to make a difference and only God can make a change. And it won't happen if pulpits don't confront confusion, if preachers don't confront dysfunction. Hallelujah. If there's not a message that deals directly with the damage of sin. Hallelujah. We're in a difficult place if there's not a free-flowing power of God's anointing that, that directly addresses those situations and things in life that need to be confronted and addressed. De Jesus didn't just pass by the five husbands. She said, you've had five husbands. Samuel didn't just pass by Saul. He said, Saul, I'm hearing stuff that's causing me consternation, and I want to understand what exactly has happened. They addressed the issue, and we as a church and a people of God must be a people that addresses the issues. How can one be transformed 
The Bible says, be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may present your bodies a living sacrifice. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed. How is one to be transformed if sin is not exposed? For as by one man's disobedience, sin into the world, and so death by sin, for that all have sinned. Romans 3 and verse 23 says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There is a sin problem. And if we just pass by and try to ignore like an elephant in the room, we will not receive salvation that we need. We will not understand completely redemption that Jesus Christ gave his life for. I want to tell you tonight that sin is the elephant that is in the room. And I want to make some remarks about that. I want to look at the Old Testament understanding of what sin is and the New Testament as well. The most common understanding in the Old Testament conveys the underlying idea of missing the mark, deviating from the goal, missing the mark, deviating from the goal. In the Old Testament, it is rebellion against God. It's defiance against his holy lordship and rule. First Kings chapter 8 and verse number 50, when talking about the covenant nature of God and Israel, the writer writes, And forgive thy people that have sinned against thee, and all their transgressions wherein they have transgressed against thee, and give them compassion before them who carried them captive, that they may have compassion on them. They missed the mark. They rebelled against God. There were transgressions that caused consequences and there was sin. And it was a direct attack against God. There's other passages that talk about sin being that which is a straying away from the correct path. God has got a correct path. And for Israel, he had a correct path. He's got a correct path for each and every one of us. And Ezekiel chapter 34 and verse number 6, this was the cry of the shepherd. My sheep wandered through all the mountains, and upon every high hill my flock was scattered upon all the face of the earth, and none did search or seek after them. The shepherd was missing. The flock had scattered. Sin had caused them to stray away from the correct path and wander into a wrong pathway and road and wrong direction. In the New Testament, missing the target or taking the wrong road is described as the ruling principle in a person's life. In Romans chapter 6 and verse number 12, Paul wrote to the Roman church and he said, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that you should obey it in the lust thereof. Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin. Sin is a taskmaster. And when you get caught up in his task, you end up yielding your members as instruments of unrighteousness. But Paul said, yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead. Praise God. And your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. I want to preach tonight and say the best thing you could do with your life is yield your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. There is life in that. There is living in that. But there's only death 
when you yield your members to unrighteousness because sin takes over and sin in its degradation will mar you. It will taint you. It will destroy you. Hallelujah. It will do the utmost to bring you down to the very bottom. Hallelujah. But I'm thankful tonight in the house of God that there is a word of God that brings to us a hope. A hope that there is a better way. There is something greater than sin. There is something greater than the power of sin. And that power is found through the Holy Ghost. The conquest of sin, despite the seriousness of the theme that runs from the beginning all the way through from Genesis to Revelation, the Bible never, never, never completely loses a note of hope and optimism when dealing with sin. Through redemption of the cross by Jesus Christ, amen, sin is defeated by his power, by his blood, and by his atonement. Sin has to give way to one that is greater. Hallelujah. I want to say right now, thanks be to God that gives us the victory. I don't care how great the sin is. There is a God that is greater. I don't care how significant the sin may be. There is a God that operates in his sovereignty that is above all, through all, and in all. We need to be thankful that we have hope. There's a people in this world that don't have any hope, but we've got a hope that maketh not ashamed. Wherever you are tonight, I want to say that there is a message of hope. This is the message of the gospel. This is the message of the scripture. When everything looks like it's in tanner, in, in, in uh, torn, tam, uh, torn down walls and shattered and in uh, shambles. There's a God that knows how to bring strength to you in the midst of that. And that's the message of hope. There is hope. And so sin in its rebellious, usurping authority, it has been vanquished. And its absurd claims have been exposed. Jesus exposed it. Its foul machinations have been unmasked and overthrown. The baleful effects and the fall in Adam is counteracted and undone in Calvary. God's honor has been vindicated. His holiness has been satisfied. And his glory has been extended to all people who recognize there is a hope. There is a hope and there is a redemption. How do you get the elephant out of the room? You have to have someone that comes and removes it. It's there. How is it removed? There is one that is greater that has to come. John chapter 1 and verse 24. The next day John seeth Jesus coming and said, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. The Lamb of God comes and removes the elephant, the thing that, that, that people want to ignore, the thing that people want to skirt around, the thing that people don't want to expose. God comes and removes that through the power of Calvary. 
The mission of Jesus was to accomplish a hopeless situation. This is the good news. This is the gospel. Mark 16 and verse 15. He said unto them, go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. The gospel. What's the gospel? The gospel is the hope to a world. Luke chapter 4 and verse 18. The spirit of the Lord is upon me, Jesus said, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. That's the gospel that Jesus came to declare. Paul said in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and verse 3, If our gospel be hid, it is hid to them that are lost. When the devil would like to come and sit in your living room, Jesus is here to say, I'm able to remove that burden and that present. I'm able to bring a gospel. I'm able to redeem and bring a hope. There is one who is able to set the captives free. Now, where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Do you believe that? You must believe that. Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, If thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, and shalt believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. You've got to have faith initially to believe that God is able to conquer. You have to have faith that God is able to remove, no matter how big the situation may be. God is able to do it. Without faith, it's impossible to please him. You've got to start there. I believe that God is able to do the miraculous. We have sung about it tonight. With Jesus, all things are possible. Nothing is impossible with God. All things are possible through him. There's power in his ability and a miracle can happen. Amen. I said a miracle <laughs> can take place, but you've got to believe it. And the good news is given and calls us to a response. It's not enough just to say, I believe that God is able, but you've got to respond to deal with the sin situation that is in your life. There is still an elephant in the room, even if you have faith to believe that God is able to remove it. I believe that God can remove it, but if that's all you're doing, then there is no addressing the sin in your life and that's what calls for a response it calls for a response the good news is given I can receive it I can believe it but that good news is calling me to a response first Corinthians chapter 15 and verse number one moreover brethren I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you which you have received and wherein you stand by which you also are saved if you keep in memory what I preached unto you, unless you have believed in vain. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that which I also received. How that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. He died for our sins. 
Amen. The thing that we're talking about, missing the mark, not measuring up, the thing that destroys. He died for our sins according to the scriptures and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures. If there is no response to that gospel message, then there is still an elephant that is in the room. There is still a presence is there. There's still a sin that is there. Amen. I can acknowledge God, but I need something to take action and to take place in my life. Amen. I can't just be intent on believing that God is able. I've got to respond to what God is calling me to do. Faith is the vehicle that brings you to God. And faith without works is dead. It can't stop. You can't sever faith from works. It doesn't go the other way. You can't buy works produce faith. You've got to have faith that God, you're able to take care of this thing that is in front of me. Now, because I have faith in what you're able to do, I'm going to follow the instructions that you have given me so that I can deal with through your power and your ability, this thing that is called sin that is in my life. I'm going to respond to that. Amen. So God calls us to identify with his gospel that has just been mentioned. This is something that you can write down if you are at home and you're taking notes. The best place to take somebody in a Bible study first is 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 1 through 4, because that is the gospel, his death, burial, and resurrection. That's the gospel. Now, how do I apply that gospel to my life? I have faith to believe that. I believe that that gospel is able to remove even something such as an elephant even something that is looming and as large as an element out of my life. That's sin in my life. God can remove it. I've got faith to believe it. But how do I respond to the call of God and identify with that gospel? What is the removal process to get the elephant out of here to address it? The elephant is there. I believe God can do something about it. That's acknowledging that there is an elephant, in fact, there. Repentance is... I've created the elephant and I've given it power and I am powerless to change. This is what repentance is. Repentance is acknowledging that these things that are in my life, I've got to take personal responsibility. The reason why it's here and it's in place and it's unmovable is because I have the responsibility, my actions, the difficulties that I'm facing, I've attributed to that presence being there. And I am powerless to change it. I I can't change it. I can try to do everything. I've ushered it in. It's before me. Sin is there. I've tried everything to cope with it, to deal with it, to change things. I can't do it on my own. And there is a call to repentance. It's more than just feeling sorry, but it's an action. Second Corinthians 7 and 8, Paul said, Though I made you sorry with the letter, I do not repent, though I did repent, for I perceive that the same epistle hath made you sorry, though it were but a season. He said, it's not, a, it's not about just feeling sorry, but it's about a turning. It's a turning around. It's a complete alteration of basic motivation and the direction of one's life. It is saying, I am, I am not going this way anymore. I've tried it. I can't do it. It's not within my power and control. I'm going to turn a 180 and I'm going a different direction. This is why the scripture is so full of verses in Jesus' teaching and 
then into the new birth message and into the early church about repentance. Mark 1.16, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent ye and believe the gospel. Jesus was calling those Pharisees and those religious people and the crowds that were gathering around. He was calling them to repent. You've gone this direction. You're doing these things. It's time to turn around and go a different direction. Matthew chapter 4 and verse 17. From that time, Jesus began to preach and to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Luke really, really emphasizes the call to repentance in the book of Luke. It's mentioned over and over. I'll give you verse references, but I won't read All of them. Luke chapter 5 and verse 32. Luke chapter 10 and verse 13. Luke chapter 11 and verse 32. Luke chapter 13 and verse 3. 13 and verse 5. Luke chapter 15 and verse 7. Luke chapter 15 and verse 10. Luke chapter 16 and verse number 30. Luke chapter 24, verses 46 and 47. All throughout Luke's gospel, there is a focus and a theme upon a call to repentance. I, I just want to say this right here, just, just so that we're not just going through the motions here. I want to tell you that most churches don't call people to repentance anymore. Repentance is identifying with Jesus' death. It's a death. When I come to an acknowledgement that it's not my will that's working, I have a difficult time acknowledging that. And so there's a death there. I'm, I, I'm not, it's not that I'm feeling sorry, but I'm repenting of the things and the consequences that I have caused. And I am, I am dying out to those things. I'm not trying to run a scam anymore. I'm not trying to skirt around the issue. I'm, I'm, I'm confronting some things in my life. And there is a death of things in my life that I've followed, a pattern that I have followed, a direction that I have followed. And Luke points out these. I'll read his last one because Jesus says unto them this in verse 24 and verse 46 of Luke. And he said unto them, Thus it is written, and thus it behooved Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead on the third day, and that repentance and remission of sins should be preached in his name among all nations beginning at Jerusalem. So a hallmark of the church, the early church, is going to be a preaching of repentance. Look for that in the book of Acts. Jesus mentions it all through the Gospels. It's mentioned over and over. Luke 13, 3, I tell you, nay, but except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. There's a perishing if there's no repentance. There's no salvation if there is no repentance. There has to be an identification with Jesus Christ's death, and that is a repentance. Acts chapter 3 and verse 19, we see this continued in the message of the early church. Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins may be blotted out when the times of refreshing shall come from the presence of of the Lord. Acts chapter 17 and verse 30. And the times of this ignorance God winked at, but now commandeth all men everywhere to repent. There's a repentance. Acts chapter 26, when Paul is giving his testimony to King Agrippa, he says, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision, but showed first unto them of Damascus and at Jerusalem and throughout all the coast of Judea and then to the Gentiles that they should. This is what he preached. Didn't matter who he was standing in front of. Didn't matter what crowd he was facing. He said, I preached that they should repent and turn to God and do works meet for repentance. A repentance. One must turn away 
from sin and to God. How do you remove that presence from your living space? You respond by faith and you respond to the call of repentance. I can't remove this. It's too large for me, so I must believe that somebody can. And so I turn to God. That's repentance. And I say to God, I know I can't do it, but I know you can. And so I'm asking through your power and your ability to remove this thing that is before me. It's an acknowledgement. That's what repentance is. Can you stop here? Well, if you stop here, the elephant is still in the room. You can acknowledge that God is able. You confess that it's not your will, but it's God's will and God's ability. But if that's the only thing that you have done, the evidence of the problem is still staring at you. It's still in front of you. The Bible says repentance and remission of sins. God can take care of it, but it needs to be remitted. So it's still there. I've acknowledged it. The sin is there. God has forgiven me. I've repented. I've died out to some things. But God still calls me to walk with him through his gospel, through his message, through his death and his burial, to walk with him through the very same things that he has undergone so that I can be free from the sin that was in my life. This is why he calls us to baptism in Jesus' name. This is why it's so prominent in the book of Acts. How can I remove completely the evidence of the elephant that is in the room? Luke chapter 24 and verse 47 says that the remission of sins go to Jerusalem, that repentance and the remission of sins can begin there. And so the disciples went to Jerusalem. They were there in Jerusalem. They started the inauguration of the church in Jerusalem. And there was in Jerusalem an opportunity for remission of sins. In Acts chapter 2 and verse number 38, there is mention of baptism in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. In Matthew chapter 28 and verse number 19, the scripture says, Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name. The name is singular and the name is Jesus. It's modified by of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost are all identified in scripture by the name that's above every name, the preeminence of the name, and that's why it's singular here, in the name of Jesus. There is no confusion here because the disciples in the book of Acts baptized in that name, in the name of Jesus. Mark chapter 16 and verse 16. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth not shall be damned. It's not enough just to repent, even though the scripture said if one believes on the Lord Jesus, you will be saved. That's written to the Roman church. The Roman church has already repented. They've already been baptized in Jesus' name. They've already been filled with the Holy Ghost. So the point Paul is making is you have to have faith, but that alone doesn't save you. There's a response to a call of the gospel. And so I, I need to have faith I need to repent of my own will and my own doing of the things that I've done wrong in an acknowledgement that only God can take care of that situation and that problem. And I need a remission of that sin, that elephant that is still in the room, still in front of me, still a prominent influence in my life. This is why you don't tarry. This is why you don't delay. This is why you don't wait. This is why Ananias said to Paul, why are you tarrying? arise now and wash away your sins because it's still there and you still need to deal with that. 
Baptism in Jesus' name is the remission of sins. In Acts chapter 2, there's an upper room experience. It spills out of the upper room and it moves out into the street and Peter stands up and starts to preach. And at some point, there is a pricking in the heart. There's an acknowledgement that we are wrong, that sin is there. There's a confrontation there. And so they said, men and brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. You're identifying with his death and you're identifying with his burial. Uh, the same thing happens in Acts number 8 and Acts chapter 10. In Acts chapter 19, there is baptism in the name of Jesus. Acts chapter 22 and verse 16, I just mentioned it. And now why tarriest thou? Rise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. This is repeated in the New Testament. First Peter chapter 3 and verse number 20, which sometime were disobedient when once the long suffering of God waited in the days of Noah while the ark was a preparing, wherein few, that is eight souls, were saved by water, the like figure whereunto even baptism doth also now save us. Not the putting away of the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a good conscience toward God by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So we have to believe. We've got to follow his pattern and his gospel in repentance. And we've got to follow his pattern in baptism for that is what saves us. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 27. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 4. There is one body and one spirit even as you are called in hope of your calling. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. There's one baptism. There is only one baptism in the New Testament and in the practice of the early church. And that is baptism in a name that's above every name. Neither is there salvation and any other for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. And so the way that I can get the removal of the elephant out of the room is when I go down in a watery grave with the name of Jesus applied to my life. Something serious happened when I went down in watery graves of baptism. A huge load was lifted. A brooding presence was removed. The loud trumpeting of sin from Adam's generation was stripped off of me and it felt so very, very good as I lifted my hands and I felt that pressure and that presence removed from my life as God dealt with the sin issue in my life. Amen. It felt so good to me that I wondered, would it be possible to keep the elephant out of the room? <laughs> I wondered if it would be possible to keep the elephant out of the room. Well, in Acts chapter 1 and verse number 5, <clears throat> Scripture said, John truly baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Ghost not many days hence. In Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, you shall receive power. After that, the Holy Ghost has come upon you and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. There is power that comes through the Holy Ghost and identifying with Christ's resurrection is the empowerment of the Holy Ghost in our life. 
you shall receive power. In Acts chapter 2, there is an out, there's an outpouring of the Holy Ghost that happens in an upper room. They began to speak with tongues in that upper room. It spilled out of the upper room. Cloven tongues appeared like as of fire upon them. They spilled out into the streets and some thought that they were drunk and wondered about what kind of confusion was going on. And Peter addressed that and said, these are not drunk as you suppose, seeing that this is but the third hour of the day. But this is that which was prophesied by the prophet Joel. In the last days, saith God, I'm going to pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And he does that in an upper room outpouring. Peter responds to that in the message. And he says that they should repent and be baptized and that they shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost for this promise is unto you and to your children and to all that are afar off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. And with many other words did he testify and exhort saying, save yourselves from this untoward generation. In Acts chapter 8, there was an individual that was a sorcerer by the name of Simon. He sees as the apostles put their hands upon people and there is an outpouring of the Holy Ghost. He wants to buy that power. It's inferred that he has seen something. He has seen the same thing that happens in an upper room. The Holy Ghost falls. They begin to speak in tongues. Simon sees this and he wants to buy that experience. And Peter turns on him and says, this is not something that money can buy. So in Acts chapter 2, it is revealed. In Acts chapter 8, it is inferred. In Acts chapter 10, while Peter yet spake these words, the Holy Ghost fell on all them which heard the word. And they of the circumcision which believed were astonished, as many as came with Peter, because that on the Gentiles also was poured out the gift of the Holy Ghost, for they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. It was a, there was a correlation between the Holy Ghost outpouring and the speaking in tongues. It happens in Acts chapter 2. The Holy Ghost falls. They speak in tongues. Acts chapter 8. They lay their hands upon people. There's an outpouring of the Holy Ghost. Simon wants to purchase it and buy it. Acts chapter 10. They, the gift of the Holy Ghost is poured out and they heard them speak with tongues. Acts chapter 19. Paul comes to some of the disciples of John. And as he's passing through Ephesus in chapter 1, or chapter 19, verse 1, he said unto them, Have you received the Holy Ghost since you believed? And they said unto him, We've not so much as heard whether there be any Holy Ghost. And he said unto what then were you baptized? And they said unto John's baptism. And he then said, Paul, John verily baptized with the baptism of repentance, saying unto the people that they should believe on him, which should come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. When they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Their baptism, John's baptism, which was a forerunner of Christ, was not good enough for salvation. It was right for its time. It ushered in Jesus Christ and his ministry, but they needed to be rebaptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Ghost came on them and they spake with tongues and prophesied. There is power in the Holy Ghost. And so that is what keeps the, the empowerment of the Spirit of God in your life is what keeps the elephant from being in the room. God 
is able to remove it through repentance, a belief in him, through baptism in Jesus' name. There is a remission of that. And the empowerment of the Holy Ghost is what gives me the ability to say, I don't have to have that same power come back in my life and control me. I don't have to have those same addictions come into my life and control me. I don't have to walk under the elements of bondage and the ruler of the world any, long because, any longer because God has given to me a power and strengthened me and given me the ability to rise above things. That's what the Holy Holy Ghost does. It's an empowerment. It's the ability to rise above things that before kept you addicted, before kept you bound, before gave you no opportunity for freedom and liberty, which before was always an elephant in the room. But God, through his empowerment and through his anointing and through his spirit and his spirit on the inside of you, this is what gives me the ability to say, there's no room here anymore. Because I am full of the Holy Ghost and empowered by God's ability and God's strength. Amen. Let the Holy Ghost operate in your life. This is what removes sin in my life. Amen. It's the removal of some things that have become an elephant in the room. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 27, he's talking about difficulties and he said, you've heard it of old time that you should not commit adultery, but I say, whosoever looketh on a woman to lust after her hath committed adultery with her already in his heart. <clears throat> if your right eye offends you, pluck it out, cast it from you. For it is profitable for thee that one of thy members should perish and not that thy whole body should be cast into hell. And if your right hand offends you, Cut it off and cast it far from thee. Things that are offending me. Jesus is speaking here in hyperbole, exaggerated language. If my eye offends me, if it becomes the problem that produces the power that is in my world and in my house, if my hand is producing the offense and things are in my way and they're obstacles, I'm caught in a vicious cycle. How can I remove that presence and that, that ability that so controls me? Amen. I respond by the, the gift of the gospel. I'm able to respond by the gift of the gospel. The gospel will never lose its power. Praise God. The problem is not the Holy Ghost. The problem is with me and the problem is with my actions. It can never be that it's the problem of the Holy Ghost because the Holy Ghost empowers and brings strength and anointing. Amen. And that's why it's a glorious gospel. That's why it's the gift of the gospel. Amen. It will never lose its power. And it is powerful. Don't leave until you have eliminated that which is taking up too much space in your life. Don't walk away until God has dealt with the sin issue in your life and remitted it and removed it and, and empowers you to overcome. Amen. As we pray together and as they begin to sing tonight, God has given to us a hope that maketh not ashamed a great gospel. Hallelujah. A glorious gospel.
we stand in awe. He reaches to the highest mountain. I acknowledge you, Lord, and praise you. Oh, I know I can't do it on my own, but I know that you can. I acknowledge those things. Yeah. 